Welcome to Office Hours, a social science podcast produced by the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. Join us for conversations with prominent scholars, writers, and researchers as we discuss their ideas. As a part of the broader Society Pages project, this podcast shines a spotlight on what we, a team of graduate students and faculty members, see as some of the best sociological thinking about social life in our time. But behind the idea of sociological thinking lies a history of struggle over what counts as verifiably scientific knowledge. Today's guest, Professor Alden Morris, points to the marginalization of W.E.B. Du Bois and other black sociologists in American sociology by American sociologists as one example of how disciplinary politics can sometimes push rigorously studied experiences aside in favor of the supposedly objective view of social science. With guest host Dr. Enid Logan, Morris tells the history of an early American sociology that too often crafted theories of race without the subjective experiences rendered by Du Bois and his students. Alden Morris, welcome to Office Hours. Well, thank you very much. So, we're here to talk about your book, The Scholar Denied. And reading through the preface, you have a lot of autobiographical material, and it seems there that Du Bois was always in the background, or maybe better put, always in the forefront of your mind as you started working at Northwestern as an associate professor, and then formerly when you were an assistant at Michigan, and you had Du Bois on the, the mind from your days as a graduate student, as an undergraduate, and also in community college. But it goes back even further than that. At the preface of the book, you begin by writing, the origins of this book lie in my childhood in the heartland of Jim Crow racism in rural Tutwiller, Mississippi, where I was born in 1949. So this is a really striking and compelling statement. Can you elaborate a little more on what you mean by that and how your personal life history contributed to you wanting to write this amazing book? Uh, yes. Um, as you stated, uh, I was born in rural Tutwiler, Mississippi in 1949. And, uh, and I stayed there until I was uh, 13. And uh, what that meant is that I was growing up uh, in Mississippi in the 50s, which was still uh, a Jim Crow society. And so, um, you know, I experienced um, going to segregated schools, uh, riding at the back of the bus, uh, working uh, in the, the fields and, um, and all kinds of uh, exploitation. And uh, I remember the concerns for safety as a black person uh, very much. Uh, I became very much aware uh, in 1955, when um, Emmett Till, a 14-year-old boy from mm -hmm. Chicago, uh, was lynched, supposedly for getting fresh with a white woman. And so then uh, I experienced uh, Jim Crow and racial oppression and racial exploitation. And so long before I ever heard of Du Bois, those things were deeply imprinted in my uh, consciousness. I did not um, learn about Du Bois until I started uh, community college 
in the late 1960s. Um, it was largely a black community college on the south side of Chicago. And uh, it was there that I first read um, uh, Du Bois and uh, The Souls of Black Folk and um, his uh, battles with uh, Booker T. Washington and, um, and how uh, he was a very uh, important uh, scholar and sociologist. And so I became very well aware of, uh, of, of Du Bois and I wanted to learn more about Du Bois. And so after completing uh, my Associates of Arts degree at Olive Harvey Community College on the south side of Chicago, I attended Bradley University uh, to get a, a bachelor's uh, in Peoria, Illinois. And there, um, uh, I never, we were never assigned anything to read by Du Bois. And, uh, and I wondered why even at that time. And then when I went off to graduate school and uh, at the State University of New York at Stony Brook, uh, uh, I had anticipated that I would really get a chance to study Du Bois um, and his scholarship as well as his activism in, in, in graduate school. And then that did not happen. And, uh, and so then I decided to learn more about Du Bois on my own to, uh, to read his works and so forth and, uh, and to one day to write a book uh, that would set the record straight, showing how important uh, Du Bois was. That is, that he was an important voice that was not being heard in the academy. And so I knew that he had important things to say about race and about inequality. And so um, I decided that I wanted to really to uh, to explore that. But also, uh, all of the major uh, classical studies in sociology were about whites. And I knew that, you know, W.B. Du Bois was, it was a black man. And, uh, and that was important to me as well. And so I wanted to establish the record of Du Bois's important scholarship, as well as his activism, as well as his contributions as an African-American. Yes. Okay. Well, on those, on that exact point, um, you write also in the preface that your purpose in writing The Scholar Denied is to shift our perspective on the founding a hundred years ago of one of the social sciences in America. Can you discuss for us briefly what were Du Bois's most important contributions to the development of modern sociology in your view? Uh, yes, I can. Uh, before any other sociologists in the United States uh, was, was engaged in uh, scientific sociology. That is the use of empirical methods, uh, st st uh, statistics, uh, interviewing, uh, participant observation, field work, and so on. Uh, du Bois was doing that at the turn of the century before anyone else in the United States uh, was doing that. And also the kinds of questions that he asked uh, were also uh, advanced. And so um, he wanted to know how race and racial oppression operated, not only in the United States, but on a global scale. And he wanted to determine how it worked uh, by, by studying it and, and, and measuring 
its effects and so on, and to do so with the best kinds of methods available at the time. And once again, uh, that separated him from other sociologists who were largely uh, relying on their hunches and rumors and so forth, whereas Du Bois was doing actual research, field work and so on. And so that's why I argue that uh, W.B. Du Bois was the uh, founder of scientific sociology in America. Yeah, you have a great quote uh, on uh, when you're discussing the Philadelphia Negro. Mm-hmm. And you say that there he departs from armchair conjectures and flashes of intuition that were kind of the, the, the quote unquote methodological bread and butter of social scientists at that time. Uh, by using surveys, archival data, and ethnographic data, as well as interviews. And later you say that after the Philadelphia Negro, uh, Du Bois emerged as the, quote, first number-crunching, survey-interviewing, participant-observing, and field-working sociologist in America, a pioneer in the multi-methods approach. So I, I just really love that particular quote. Well, I must I must say that uh, I remember when... Uh, that sentence came upon me. Yeah. And I was like, yes, uh, this uh, this captures it. Uh, it. It captures all of the uh, pioneering contributions that uh, Du Bois made in uh, multiple areas in terms of using scientific methodology. Where do you think that Du Bois got the, uh, I don't know, kind of self-confidence or assurity in himself given all the uh, the racism that he faced and the marginalization that he faced in the U.S. and also the fact that he was pioneering these different kinds of methodologies, questions, and helping to develop a field that was in its infancy, as you say. Yes. Well, I think that uh, there are certain people who, from a very early age, uh, are convinced of their own uh, genius, and certainly, <laughs> certainly, Du Bois was uh, convinced of his genius uh, early on. Uh, he started publishing articles in newspapers uh, when he was 15 years old, and so he had a gift for mm-hmm. for writing and for uh, analyzing uh, social phenomena. And uh, he, by the way, did not grow up in Jim Crow uh, or in the South. He grew up in Great Barrington, Massachusetts, mm-hmm. uh, and he did, he experienced genteel racism and not the kind that he would be introduced to when he went to Fisk University in Nashville, Tennessee. And so I think early on, um, given his, um, his excellence uh, in school and given that he did not experience uh, back-breaking kind of racism and that he was embraced by... Uh, multiple uh, people in his hometown, uh, black and white, is that he was able to uh, develop this kind of uh, great self-confidence. But I think that at the same time, uh, as a sociologist, uh, we like to think that that everything can be explained sociologically. Right. (laughs) And, uh, And I do for the most part, believe that. But I also believe that there are certain people who are just geniuses. And I don't know where it comes from. (laughs) Uh, But I do know that uh, someone like uh, Du Bois uh, 
started early uh, producing very uh, important works and to do them at a very rapid pace. Yeah. And that also uh, he was involved in uh, activism. He never separated his activism from his scholarship. So early on, he was involved in movements and activities and scholarship to try to change uh, racial, racial oppression. Uh, and so like anyone that, that goes on to accomplish great things in terms of scholarship, uh, he, uh, he, he uh, was taught by very important and learned uh, professors, uh, both at Fisk and at Harvard and at the University of Berlin. And so he learned from the best, and at the same time, they recognized the, the, the genius that was in him, and they, uh, and they promoted it. Uh, but once again, uh, it is very <laughs> complicated uh, to try to understand uh, what motivated him mm-hmm. to do all of the work that, that he did at such a high level, and even in terms of quantity, Uh, I write in the book that from the age of 18 to the age of 95, uh, Du Bois uh, published something on average every 12th day of his life. Just just staggering. And at the same time, he's founding and leading all these important social movements, both nationally and internationally. And so um, I uh, what I tell young people is that what we learn from Du Bois's example is that no matter what the barriers are, uh, no matter the racism and so on, that Du Bois uh, was able to overcome those odds and to uh, really make a mark and to produce in a very prolific way and to do so at a high level. And that teaches us that these things can be done uh, despite the uh, the racism and the exclusion and the like of resources and so forth. So it's just amazing what he did given the kinds of barriers that he encountered. Yeah, so maybe we can uh, talk about that a little bit um, further. So you establish in the book that Du Bois was extremely well-educated. I believe you said he was the first African-American to get a PhD from Harvard. Correct. And he also was trained in um, economics, perhaps, in Berlin. He had an amazing educational background. He was very, very well-published. He was innovative in his use of different methodologies and his approach to studying the uh, issue of racism. Um, but you also discuss in the book the many ways that Du Bois's role in the founding of sociology and his contributions to the discipline were marginalized or ignored. And I'm wondering if you would discuss that further and tell us more about what happened to Du Bois and professionally and also to his um, scholarship throughout his career. Yes. Uh, well, it is definitely true that... Uh, Du Bois was one of the most educated persons of the 20th century in the whole world. And, um, and as we um, said earlier, that the amount of scholarship that he's, he produced is just staggering. And we said that the quality of it uh, was very, very um, high. Uh, but um, during this particular time, uh, black people were considered to be inferior. They were considered to be an, an inferior race. 
And this was uh, the belief in the larger society by whites, but it was also a, a belief uh, in academe, in academia, that black people were uh, inferior. So on the one hand, uh, Du Bois was not uh, considered to be uh, uh, an advanced uh, pioneering scholar, uh, probably better than all of the rest around him, uh, because he was a member of the black race mm -hmm. and black people were seen to be inferior. And, and Du Bois's genius did not exclude him from being seen as inferior. And so on the one hand, then, uh, Du Bois was marginalized uh, because of his race. But then again, um, there are other reasons. And that is, is that Du Bois's ideas and his scholarship were dangerous because mm -hmm. they challenged the status quo. Uh, du Bois did not buy the idea that God and nature made black people inferior. Uh, in fact, uh, his uh, sociology and his uh, uh, journalism and his novels and his poetry and so on all uh, had the purpose of demonstrating uh, that black people were the equals of any other race and that, and that, and that black people were by no means uh, inferior. And so then what he does is that he goes out to prove this scientifically. And of course, this, this, this went against everything that, uh, that, 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 that dominant whites thought about black people. And, uh, and so then his scholarship and his ideas could not be easily integrated into the scholarships and the ideas of the dominant group and of scholars of the dominant group. And so Du Bois was uh, marginalized not only because of racism, mm -hmm. but because of his scholarship, his ideas, which were very uh, radical uh, at the time. Now, let me add very quickly that um, Du Bois was not merely a race scholar. Mm -hmm. Du Bois also looked into gender inequality, and he concluded there that women were equally endowed intellectually as men, and that they, therefore there were no, no reasons why women should not uh, be treated equally uh, as men. Uh, du Bois also was a scholar of, of social class, and he, he studied the white working class and asked the question, why is it that working class whites will not uh, unite with blacks to realize their mutual class interests? And so then uh, Du Bois, in addition to being a scholar of race, he was a scholar of social inequality more generally. He was a, a scholar of uh, slavery and a scholar of colonialism in Africa and in Asia and in South America. And so his views and analyses really uh, flew in the face of uh, the structures of inequality and oppression globally. And so he was uh, difficult to, to deal with uh, in terms of his scholarship and his ideas. And that therefore then, uh, he was just the, the mainstream Mainstream white scholars, for the most part, especially in sociology, uh, just did not cite him, uh, ignored his work, and uh, did not publish him uh, or review his work in the major journals and so forth of the day. 
And so uh, it's been uh, a century uh, uh, since uh, we, you know, given the long marginalization and, and invisibility of Du Bois. And so it is only now within the last 25 years that uh, uh, 25, 30 years that we are going back now, uh, discovering the importance and the, the pioneering contributions that uh, Du Bois made to social science at the uh, when they were in the uh, infancy. Mm-hmm. Well, your discussion just now about the radical nature of Du Bois's ideas and the challenges that he poised to um, social science and to views of blacks more generally takes us to think about the relationship between Du Bois and Booker T. Washington. And especially in this book, what's really interesting to us as sociologists is the, the role that Robert Park played here. So your discussion of the relationship between these three men is, is really fascinating. And one thing that you document in the book is the very close relationship that Robert Park, who was a leading figure in the Chicago School of Sociology, um, had with Booker T. Washington, the, who was a black conservative leader. And I think you said he was engaged in a maybe decades long epic ideological battle with Du Bois. Um, so I wonder if you could discuss the relationship between these three men uh, for a little bit, uh, the, the conflicts between uh, Washington and Du Bois and also Park's um, relationship with uh, Washington and then how the Washingtonian view went on to be influential in the Chicago School of Sociology. Yes, certainly. Um, before I initiated the research uh, on Du Bois, I had no idea of the um, close relationship that had existed between Robert Park and Booker T. Washington. Um, even up until I wrote this book, when you would read about Robert Park, it simply said that, that he worked with um, Booker T. Washington. And then it jumps from there to uh, Park getting a job at the University of Chicago and then becoming a pioneering uh, sociologist, uh, leading the uh, Chicago School of Sociology. But when I read that uh, uh, Robert Park had worked with uh, Booker T. Washington for seven years. I said, oh, my goodness, there's a story here mm -hmm. and I've got to research it and find out what this is about. And so as I researched it, it became very clear uh, that uh, Du Bois, um, I mean, uh, Robert E. Park uh, went to work down at uh, Booker T. Washington's Tuskegee Institute and he became a very close uh a uh, comrade and uh, friend and, and uh, employer or uh, employee of uh, Booker T. Washington. He was a ghost writer for Booker T. Washington, all you know, for seven years. Uh, he uh, helped develop the whole Washingtonian philosophy of race, or at least, or at least he um, uh, disseminated it in. Uh, newspapers and magazines and articles and so forth. And so um, there was this very close relationship, working relationship, and even friendship 
uh, between Booker T. Washington and, uh, and Robert Park. And of course, Booker T. Washington uh, views about race and racial advancement um, were very different than those of Du Bois. Uh, Booker T. Washington, a very complicated uh, leader, certainly one of the most powerful black leaders that has ever existed. And um, he believed that black people should advance by engaging in industrial education, by working with their hands, that they should not be concerned uh, with politics and, uh, and social equality, that what they needed to do was to establish an economic base. And from, from that base, you would end up getting social equality and uh, political uh, equality. And uh, in 1903, in Du Bois's classic book, uh, The Souls of Black Folk, he took issue with uh, Booker T. Washington's uh, view that blacks should advance through industrial education. And Du Bois accused him of being very, too narrow, that that approach was too narrow. And, and by the way, then, so Robert Park, uh, adopted uh, uh, Booker T. Washington's views about race and about racial advancement and so on, and, um, and worked with uh, Booker T. Washington to, uh, to neutralize Du Bois, to render him uh, politically and intellectually invisible. Uh, Booker T. Washington did not tolerate rivals. Mm -hmm. uh, he uh, planted spies and, uh, and did everything he could to neutralize those who would challenge him. And he had an especial uh, dislike for Northern intellectuals, especially those of the, the, the Harvard and, the, and, and Yale and Princeton types. And so then um, Washington and, uh, and, uh, and um, Robert Park uh, shared these views, and um, and uh, they worked, as I said, to neutralize Du Bois. And then, so when Park moved to the University of Chicago, um, he brought the Washingtonian view of race into the Chicago school. That is, that change would come in a very gradual way. That there was no need for agitation and protest. That these things would uh, work. Their, their way out in a very natural kind of sense and so on. And so he brought those views into uh, the Chicago school. And for a very long time, um, uh, those kinds of Washingtonian principles uh, were uh, transplanted into the uh, Chicago school. And it also meant that, that the oppressed, and certainly black people as part of the oppressed, uh, should not engage in agency, uh, protest movements and so forth to bring about uh, uh, an overthrow of, uh, of, of oppression. And so what I'm, I would also point out that uh, I demonstrate in the book that Robert Park did argue clearly that black people relative to other groups, white groups, um, were inferior. And, uh, and so that kind of view of black people not having agency, that they were different than others, that they were not uh, intellectually endowed in the same way as others, uh, that became part of the furniture of the, the Chicago school. And so then this is what I mean when I say that Washington and Robert Park uh, were very closely tied that what Robert Park, uh, that Booker T. Washington 
uh, impacted uh, Robert Parks' views, especially about race, and that they worked together to neutralize Du Bois, and that this became part of, the, of our history of, uh, of social science in the United States, and one of the reasons why du, du Bois was so marginalized. And the reason why the Chicago School uh, uh, produced a kind of uh, sociology of race that was not accurate. Mm -hmm. The Chicago School could not predict the civil rights movement, uh, could not predict the black power movement or any of that, because if you have the view that black people are inferior, and if you have the view that they really cannot exercise agency given their inferiority, then there's no way that you're going to predict that uh, black people themselves would organize a major movement in the middle of the 20th century that would not only change America, uh, but, uh, but, but impact the world. And so that's been the legacy. That, that is, is, is that if we had followed Du Bois's lead, we would have been able to see the strength both organizationally and institutionally within the black community that could very well end up uh, with a major movement such as the civil rights movement. On those points, I want to um, bring in a, a, some quotes that you have from page 108, and you say that Park uh, viewed Washington's stance on race as wiser than Du Bois's, both sociologically and pragmatically. And you say, for Park, it was Washington who correctly understood the historical process by which primitive blacks could be eased into civilized society and who realized that a solution to the Negro problem consequently required patience rather than intervention by misguided radicals. So this brings us to um, something that we've touched on or you've touched on a few times, which is the relationship between uh, activism and scholarship in Du Bois. And one of the things that you find as the, is that Du Bois combined very rigorous um, attention to detail, to methods, to data, with his piercing cultural commentary and critique. So he was very much a scholar and an activist at the same time, Whereas many young scholars today may feel that they have to be one or the other. So they can be either um, a rigorous scholar or they can be a committed activist. Um, can you discuss this aspect of Du Boisian sociology, which is how or the degree to which he combined the two, both scholarship and activism? Uh, absolutely. Um, du Bois felt that you engaged in scholarship scientific, rigorous scholarship uh, so that you could better understand society and the structures of society and domination within the society for the purpose of changing it. And so Du Bois never believed that there was some sort of objective, neutral knowledge that could be produced. And, uh, and so uh, he never separated scholarship and activism. And the problem is, is that, is that there are those in the, in the intellectual tradition uh, which says that if you engage in scholarship and activism, that your activism will contaminate your scholarship yep. and that you will therefore not be objective. You are not doing science. You're then doing propaganda. And the uh, Chicago School, especially Robert Park, uh, always argued 
that you don't need social work and do-goodism in social science and in sociology. Uh, that if you engaged in any kind of activism and trying to bring about social change, that you you had uh, left the realm of scholarship and, and, and now you were just engaged in politics. And, but not only that, but, but there was this view that society itself worked its way through natural processes and that uh, it would do no good for people to try to intervene and to hurry those processes. And so then um, that's why Booker T. Washington and Robert Park argued that, you know, change, racial change would come, but it might take centuries and there was a need to be patient and by all means uh, do not interject yourself into these social processes that evolved in a natural manner. And so then um, uh, what we have here is two different uh, views of scholarship and activism. The uh, view of the, of the dominant uh, perspective, and it's not just, it was not just the Chicago school, but it was uh, Columbia University, University of Pennsylvania. It was the, the um, uh, dominant white social science generally, you know, who argued for pure, objective, detached scholarship. And um, what uh, uh, I think that we should also point out here is that sociology was just emerging in America in the last decade of uh, the 20th century, uh, that is the last decade of the 19th century. And, um, and so it wanted legitimacy. It wanted to be considered to be a major academic endeavor like the natural sciences or economics and so on. Mm -hmm. And so they, so the dominant view was is that you, what you needed, needed to do was to establish that you had an objective science, that it was not a science that was involved in, in propaganda and do-goodism and so on and so forth, but a rigorous objective science. And, uh, and so by doing that, they thought that you could legitimate the field. Uh, but Du Bois, uh, you know, I think that it's important to look at this and to say Du Bois came, was a member of the oppressed. Yes. He witnessed uh, lynchings or the aftermath of lynchings. And as he said, he rode Jim Crow. Jim Crow. He rode the Jim Crow car. And uh, he dealt with the insults that came with being black. So it, 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 it was really not possible for Du Bois to have this detached, aloof view of scholarship and that it should not be involved with activism. That just went against everything that he, uh, he experienced. But I think what is so important, and this is important for young scholars, is that uh, for those who believe that there is an intimate relationship between activism and scholarship, this does not mean that because you engage in activism, you do less than rigorous scholarship. In fact, if you are a member of the oppressed and you want to come up with scientific ideas about how to dismantle that oppression, the stakes are very high and you want to get it right. Right. So you so you really have more at stake here in doing, you know, rigorous um, uh, science that will 
whose ideas would really inform and make struggles for liberation uh, more effective. And so I think that in many ways then it's, it's an irony. And that is that Du Bois being a scholar and being an activist actually produced uh, in a pioneering way, much more scientific scholarship yes. than those who were preaching objectiv ob objectivity, neutrality, and detachment. And by the way, um, for many scholars who at that time, and I would argue now, who preach value neutrality, uh, objectivity, and being aloof to the issues of the day, what we see is that behind the scenes, they had agendas. Right. They were political, uh, but, they, but they hid behind the smokescreen of just doing pure uh, uh, science and not engaging in the battles of the day. So finally, what I would say about that is that from, I think that what Du Bois demonstrated that sociology and indeed the social sciences is an emancipatory project. Mm -hmm. And that to the degree that you can produce a science that can lead to important social change, that can deal with questions of racial inequality, class inequality, gender uh, inequality, sexual orientation and, and, and equality, all of those kinds of um, those kinds of issues. If you do that, then you are engaging in an emancipatory scientific enterprise. And I think that Du Bois, therefore, is a model of that kind of, that kind of social, social science, that is an emancipatory social science, an emancipatory sociology. You know, I love uh, this idea, especially as you've um, expressed it. I think that one of the main things that you just addressed or dismantled is this idea that activism will uh, be contaminated. No, that activism will contaminate scholarship. But what about the reverse argument that scholarship uh, contaminates activism, or you might say that some would say that the master's tools cannot dismantle the master's house. Right. Uh, you might say that if the academy and scholarship, especially what's considered to be valid, rigorous scholarship, are part of the oppressor's tools or the tools of power and hegemony in any society, how can we use it to overthrow oppression? So to what extent can scholars really do transformative work? And I ask that because um, there might be those of us who are thinking, oh, I'm sitting here in my ivory tower. I should be out on the, the streets with a, with a sign or, or, or protesting. Maybe that's more important work. Maybe I'm really kind of doing the work of the man sitting here using his tools. What do you say about that for those of us who are or for people who are kind of struggling with, with that? Science does not belong to any particular group. It does not belong to the dominant group. It does not belong to the oppressed group. And so Du Bois would never concede that scientific work is just engaging in the work of the dominant and that uh, and that those that science is only mm -hmm. the tools of the of the masters. He would not he would not agree with that. The argument would be that science is a contested area of human endeavor. Mm -hmm. And that and that and that again, we the oppressed uh, needs 
scientific information. Yes. And, and, and that scientific information grows out of close study. It, it grows out of thinking and reading and writing. And so that Du Bois would never concede that those things are the master's tools only. He would argue that uh, the oppressed um, really uh, have an opportunity or a responsibility to develop a science that will help them uh, uh, engage in, in activity for liberation. So Du Bois's view is that without scientific knowledge, all of the efforts at reform will be a failure because it's not based on knowledge. And so while I completely agree with it, that you can't use the master's tools to bring about change, but what that means to me is that the way that the masters have developed those tools, you can't use their development of them to bring about change because they developed right. science in such a way as to promote their dominance. Uh, but at the same time, the oppressed also develop tools uh, using science to dismantle the, the master's house. And so what I would uh, mm -hmm. argue is that scholarship and uh, science, they uh, cross-fertilize each other. And that mm -hmm. for those people, you know, when you think about Karl Marx, uh, no, Karl Marx was very clear about what his scholarship was about. It was about the overthrow of capitalism and the establishment of communism. And, uh, and Marx's whole emancipatory agenda was to change the world. And I don't think that there are many people who would argue that Marx's scientific work was fatally flawed because of his desire and his goals to change the world. At the same time, Du Bois, nor Marx, nor Max Weber, none of these people are, are really prophets. They are human beings doing science and, and some engaged in, in activism. And so I, I don't see uh, Marx or Weber or Du Bois or Robert Park or any of them as uh, being perfect. And so then the, the bottom line is, is that clearly looking at the works of somebody like Marx and, uh, and uh, Du Bois, uh, I think that what we learn is that scholarship and activism uh, can be carried out in a mutual fashion, that they are not mutually exclusive, and that, and that they really enhance each other. And so then if I'm working mm -hmm. on social movements the way that I do, uh, I find that there right. are people uh, in the labor movement that have used my work and say that it enhanced their organizing and they learn how to organize better and so on and so forth. Well, to me, that's a real test of my ideas about how social movements and organizing work. And so uh, in that way, uh, when I talk to labor organizers and so forth, I learn more from them about what they are facing on the ground. And it gives me new insights and new questions to be raised in my scholarship about uh, labor activism. 
And so that I think that there is an intimate relationship between activism and scholarship and that, in fact, the two operating simultaneously really creates a situation where you enhance both simultaneously. Now, in chapter three of the book, you discuss um, Du Bois's students are uh, kind of his contemporaries, and you describe the, quote, special zeal with which which other black sociologists in the early 20th century embraced sociology and sought to use its tools and methods of inquiry towards black liberation and towards the advancement of the discipline. And one of the things that you do really powerfully in this book is uncover a marginalized tradition of black sociology and to use your words to resurrect a hidden generation of black sociologists. And many of these were students of Du Bois. And I was personally very inspired by this, by your excavation of this long history of the key contributions of black scholars to the discipline of sociology. And and the fact that you point out that this dates from the very foundations of the field. So it's not like um, black sociologists got into the game, you know, generations later. And you point out that uh, though many of the early prominent black sociologists um, are typically credited their education to Park or to the Chicago school, many of them credited Du Bois. Um, so I wonder how you would describe the importance or relevance of this work for black sociologists and other academics of color today. So you, you've touched upon this uh, somewhat, but maybe you could just talk about this a little bit more. Like what is the kind of importance of your findings or of this work or Du Bois's legacy for um, black sociologists or other academics of color, both those of us who are um, in the field working as sociologists or those who are still in graduate Well, you know, <laughs> I would say that uh, I, I um, prefer the idea of a black intellectual tradition. I do not think that I don't I don't think of uh, these scholars or even myself as doing black sociology. I'm not really sure what black sociology is. And I and, and I have colleagues who would certainly differ with me. Uh, but I think that um, uh, let me give you an interesting story. So I was going to name the book, The Black Scholar Denied. And uh, I gave a talk at Harvard. And, uh, and afterwards, I had dinner with uh, Professor Bill Wilson and Lawrence Bobo. And uh, Bobo asked me, uh, so what's the title of the book going to be? And I said, uh, The Black Scholar Denied. And then he said, He said, why the black scholar denied? And I said, because this book is about race and about scholarship and about the academy. And so why would I I not include uh, the word black in the title? So Larry said, Bobo said, well, look, if I understand your argument right, you are saying that Du Bois was a pioneer of sociology, period. And that, and that, and that, and that therefore, to say the black sociologist was denied suggests, suggests something that it's just about race as opposed to be a general pioneer in sociology. And he said, in that way, if you name the book, the black scholar denied that in a way you will be marginalizing Du Bois too. And uh, and he said, why not just a scholar denied? 
and I argued back and forth and back and forth. And, and, I, and I discussed it with other people, and especially young black people. They said, oh, you better keep black in the title. Right. And, uh, and so I, I ended up, I ended up uh, uh, saying, you know, I think Bobo is correct. He also asked me, he said, picture this. He says, if a white scholar or a white person uh, walks into a bookstore and they see the scholar denied, or they see the black scholar denied, which one do you think they would be more likely to buy? And, uh, and, and he said that the bottom line is that they're gonna just say, oh, there's some more of that black stuff. And, uh, and so that really uh, impacted me. And so what I'm saying is, is that I think that what we see is that there, there's a black intellectual tradition that produced in many ways superior scholarship and especially during the uh, founding period of sociology. And so I don't need to call that black sociology. I call it black, I call it sociology that emerged from the black intellectual tradition. Okay, and I think that distinction is, uh, is very important. Now, now to move on to what you're saying is that yes, I discovered uh, uh, by reading others who've written, by, written about this, by the way, uh, somebody like Earl Wright uh, III, that there were uh, the, at the, um, the Atlanta Sociological Laboratory, which Du Bois headed, that there were many students, undergraduate and graduate students who were involved in Du Bois's enterprise. And that there were uh, uh, professional sociologists such as Monroe Work and Edmund Haynes and Richard R. Wright Jr. who were involved. And, and uh, those three, that is Wright, uh, Haynes, and Work, they had gotten graduate degrees at predominantly white universities, Chicago and uh, Pennsylvania and Columbia. Uh, and so what that, but, 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 but what we don't know is that it, what, what we did not know was the degree to which uh, Du Bois's scholarship had influenced them influenced E. Franklin Frazier, for example, who acknowledged Du Bois as being the pioneer in the study of the African-American community. And what we did not know is that these scholars uh, went and worked with Du Bois and were mentored by Du Bois and all. And so in the book, therefore, I argue that there's a whole generation of black sociologists who, who, who have been erased from the collective memory of the discipline. And that's really, uh, really a shame. And this is why uh, I did the work to put them on the historical stage where they should be. Because up until now, what we do is that we kind of say, well, you know, that was Du Bois and he was a, a pioneer. And then later on came uh, E. Franklin Frazier uh, and Oliver Cox and so on. And we never even think that there was this generation in between that is of Monroe work and, uh, and, and Richard R. Wright and Edmund Haynes and all of those students. You know, Du Bois utilized as researchers the students at the HBCUs, the Historically Black Colleges and Universities. They became his researchers who went out into the field and collected data and so on and so forth. And so we have a record of what happened at Chicago in terms of the Chicago School of Sociology and who was involved and what they wrote and what they produced. But we, uh, we are only now beginning to get accounts 
of the sociologists and the students who were involved in what I call the, the Du Bois Atlanta School of Sociology. And so it, 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 it's really uh, bringing to light the ways in which uh, black sociologists um, have been erased. Now, let me go back to an earlier uh, question that you raised about uh, uh, black uh, sociologists having this zeal to uh, identify and to embrace sociology uh, as a tool of, of, of liberation. Well, when sociology emerged and uh, it, it was a promise, it had the promise of really understanding society and race relations from a scientific point of view. And so it was sort of like a secular religion to black scholars because they believe that through rigorous uh, science, social science, that they could uh, prove that black people were not inferior and that they were in fact oppressed. And so it was oppression rather than their DNA that kept them uh, exploited and at the bottoms of the society. And so they then flocked to the to sociology because they saw it as an emancipatory enterprise. And so one of the things that we've not done is that we, and, and I try to do it in the Scholar Denied, is to capture how black people were early uh, devotees of, uh, of, of sociology and social science precisely because they felt that they could use it as a tool of enlightenment and a tool of liberation and a tool of change. And so we are only now beginning to document how important social science and sociology were to uh, teacher, black teachers and scholars and community leaders. And that's, that, that is not a story that is well known or has been adequately told. Well, that is a perfect segue into my um, last question, which is uh, the charge, concerns the charge that you've left us with with this book. So in writing the book, you have clearly given a charge to the discipline of sociology and to all of us as sociologists. And I wonder if you would describe what this charge, how you would describe this charge, what is this charge in terms of our scholarship, our research, and our teaching, what do you hope will change or will come about um, as a result of your work? Well, you know, on the one hand, um, it's an humbling experience to be asked a question about how my work can <laughs> change uh, uh, scholar scholarship or elements of scholarship and all. Uh, uh, if it if it if it does so in any important way, uh, I will be one of the most happiest persons on earth. Uh, I, I would say that there are a number of lessons to be learned. Uh, uh, that that one that uh, going back to the point made earlier is that is that the dominant group does not own yes. sociology or mm -hmm. social science. That from the very beginning, uh, black people were there. Uh, du Bois asked the, asked the question, how come America come to be yours? We were here. 
uh, from the very beginning. And he's talking about in America, but I would make the same argument about sociology and social science. We were there from the very beginning. And we, uh, especially through Du Bois and the Atlanta School and all, is that we were the, the pioneering scientific school of sociology. So for one thing, I think it says to uh, black people and people of color and oppressed people uh, that we are as capable of producing excellence and scholarship and scholarship that matters and that we have had a long history of doing so. So we own it as much as anyone else. I think that that's one lesson. I think another lesson is, is that the experiences of, 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 of being oppressed, of being exploited, of being treated as less than others, that that creates a certain sort of sensibility. And that causes, uh, people to raise important questions about society, about power, about exploitations, about how institutions work and so forth, uh, that others do not raise. And so then uh, it creates what has come to be known as a subaltern kind of view mm -hmm. uh, that uh, we, is that, the, is that people who, who have been oppressed are generally concerned with a certain set of issues that 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 are understudied and in many cases not even recognized as important. And so I think that what this teaches us is that uh, is that uh, members of the oppressed group uh, uh, need to create uh, insurgent schools of knowledge mm. of social science and so forth, precisely because this is not an essentialist argument. This is not that black people or the oppressed can do better social science because it's in their genes. No, it is saying that that standpoint, one's standpoint, what one has experienced, they, they're, they're, how they live their daily lives, uh, shape the kinds of questions and thoughts and hunches and so forth that they have. And that we very much need to interject those uh, kinds of questions and insights uh, into uh, social scientific work. And so I would say that, that uh, uh, we, we need to be aware that there is a kind of insurgent sociology and social science, because it is interesting that the first school of scientific sociology was produced in a historically black uh, university and that it had very few resources and that it was on the periphery of academia. And it shows then that uh, powerful ideas and creativity uh, can exist on the periphery and not just in prestigious uh, uh, universities and, and colleges and so on. I think it says that. I think on a practical level, what it says is, is that it is time for, for sociology uh, as well as other social scientists to come to incorporate the scholarship and the ideas and the insights of uh, black social scientists historically and other social scientists of color around the world into the curriculum. There is now no excuse for not having Du Boisian sociology in the curriculum of our uh, uh, universities and our colleges and so forth. 
to teach it in classes, to have questions on exams about it. Mm -hmm. um, that, that there's another thing here too. And that is, is that in many ways, Du Bois is exemplary. And by that, I mean that there have been many scholars who have been denied because of, of oppression and exclusion. People like Ida B. Wells and Anna Julia Cooper and Franz Fanon and, and South, black South African scholars and scholars in India and in South America. And so what we need to do is to incorporate these voices and these bodies of work. And I think by so doing, we will interject new uh, vigor and uh, insight uh, into, our, into our discipline. And finally, I think that um, what I am experiencing, I, I, I think that what we're going through in the academy and the social sciences right now is this is a divorce moment. Hmm. And that there are a lot of uh, uh, scholars, especially young scholars, and they are and they are they are not simply black scholars or scholars of color. They are young white scholars as well who are discovering uh, Du Bois's work. And I think that uh, that the scholar denied is a work that stands in the center of all of these efforts. And so what I hear from young people, uh, young scholars, is that they thank me for having written a book because they say that it legitimizes the kind of work that they want to do and that it teaches them that you don't just have to follow the script is that you can do challenging work critical work and so on and so forth and so if anything i hope my work and work like mine will give young scholars the confidence to pursue their own voice to ask unique questions, uh, to challenge the accepted wisdom uh, within the discipline. And if I can be of help in any manner, I, I, I will feel very blessed. Well, this is certainly a very impactful and meticulously researched and beautifully written book. Well, thank you. We've been talking to Alden Morris about his new book, The Scholar Denied, W.E.B. Du Bois and the Birth of Modern Sociology, which is available from the University of California Press. Alden, thank you so much for stopping by. Well, thank you. I very much enjoyed uh, uh, talking to you, and I uh, enjoyed the discussion and the kinds of questions that you asked me. So thank you very much. This episode of Office Hours featured Dr. Alden Morris speaking about his new book, The Scholar Denied. It was hosted by Dr. Enid Logan and produced by Matt Gunther at the Society Pages at the University of Minnesota. If you like this episode, you can find more content like it and lots of great written articles on our website, thesocietypages.org.